if you ever needed evidence that he is good, you ought to get it today. Palm Sunday. The perfect Son of God walks into Jerusalem to pay off your debt, my debt, and open a way into eternal life. He is good. I want to welcome you to our Palm Sunday service today. I've got on my Palm Sunday shirt. I keep this in the closet for this event every year. I don't know, 10 years now I've been wearing this same shirt. One, I actually hoped I'd get so skinny I couldn't get in it anymore, but I'd give up on that. Palm Sunday has a significance to the church. I have no idea why. But uh, there have been some remarkable events that have taken place on Palm Sundays. So I come with expectations. I remember in 2007, we were in worshiping in that original, very small building, and we made a decision that we were going to just take a leap of faith. And we pulled a wagon up took all the chairs out of the building and put them in a basement in the fellowship hall. And we worshiped in the fellowship hall for three years. And the church grew. In a basement. Terrible situation. Eight foot ceilings, crowded, hot. And while we were there, we moved in on Palm Sunday. Three years later, and if you've ever ran a construction project, you know you can't pick a date of construction being finished, but guess when we were able to move in three years later to this facility, Palm Sunday. God has done amazing things, particularly on this day that we celebrate Jesus entering Jerusalem for that last time. Today I come with expectations. Today I come with a question. And I'm going to ask the church to raise your hand in proportion to your answer. Here's the first question. Do you believe in heaven? Raise your hand. All right, put your hands down. That one's pretty easy. Do you believe in hell? Raise your hand. You see... There is something called the afterlife. And it's what happens after this life. Do you believe that there is a life after this one? Raise your hand. I do too. In fact, the Bible speaks so much about the afterlife that I've made a decision and I'm convinced the Holy Spirit is leading in this direction that I intend, by the grace of God, to spend seven weeks today and six that follow specifically addressing the topic of the afterlife. I want to know what's on the other side. I don't want to guess. I don't want you to have to guess. When the truth is in front of us about the afterlife, you need to know the truth about the afterlife. A Pew Research Center poll published in 2015 found that 72% of Americans believe in heaven. So when I saw you raise your hands, I'm not surprised that you would raise your hand, you believe in heaven. Even if in reality you're in church today and you're not sure about heaven, the peer pressure alone would make you stick your hand up. <laughs> 72% of Americans polled believe in heaven. 58% of Americans in that same poll believed in hell. It's quite a few less would hold their hand up when you ask about hell. Fewer than half of Hindus, that same poll, said that fewer than half of Hindus, Buddhists, and Jews believe in heaven. So that number is going down quickly. 72% believe in heaven, but when you go and you, and you hit a specific people group, Buddhist, Hindus, and Jewish people, 
believing in heaven. Now we're under 50%. Now I'm going to tell you, those statistics aren't terribly surprising to me, but what I'm about to read to you is a group which includes atheists, agnostics, and people of unidentifiable religion. Not, they don't identify with any religion. 37% of this group says that they believe in heaven. 27% of that group says they believe in hell. What? Now, understand what this poll is. They polled non-believers, atheists, agnostics, people who have rejected all forms of religion, and asked them the question I just asked you. Do you believe there's a heaven? 37% of them said yes. When asked, do you believe there's a hell? 27% of them said yes. How does that work? How is that possible that to have no religious beliefs and then to believe in heaven and believe in hell, at least to some degree? I want you to think deeply about that for a moment. Why do unbelievers believe in heaven, at least to some degree? And why do unbelievers believe in hell, at least to some degree? Why? Because it really doesn't make sense. Can I attempt to answer the question? Because I have thought deeply about that. See, I'm convinced that nothing makes sense without the belief in an afterlife. Nothing in your life, nothing in life itself makes any sense without the belief that there's something on the other side. The afterlife. I want us today to do something. I want us to be intellectually honest. I, I don't want to be some form of religion that doesn't understand why you believe what you believe. I want us to be intellectually honest, very honest right now. And here's my point. There is a danger in society. Right now, there is a danger in society that falls for the lie of evolution. There is a danger to living in that society. Here's where I'm going. You see, if you today believe, you raise your hand, you believe in heaven, you raise your hand, you believe in hell, you have raised your hand in essence saying you believe there's something after this life. But would that make any sense if you rejected before life? Can there be an afterlife and there is no before life? I don't mean before life for me. See, I had an origin. I have not always been. But there is one that has always been. And for there to be an afterlife that you and I can count on, you must acknowledge that there is someone who is before life. A creator. Someone that not only has life, but has the ability to give life to others. So what's the problem with evolution? Evolution denies the before life factor of our existence. It, why, why is that a societal danger? Because if you could ever convince a majority of a group of people in a society that you came from nothing, and at the end there is also nothing, then what is the middle, what's the meaning of life? If you could convince a majority of a nation, a majority of a group of people, if you could convince a majority of people that you came from nothing, and in front of you is also nothing, then I would ask you a question. What's the meaning of life? you would have to conclude nothing. Life has no meaning. So what's the danger? What do, you think, what do you think that society will produce? A civilized society? A harmonious society? A love, peace society? Or will it produce anarchy? If there is no before life, then what makes you think there could be an afterlife? And yet we have people who believe in heaven who refuse to acknowledge anything before life, any creator, any beginning. This is the ultimate definition of hopelessness. 
If you want to find a society that without hope, find a society that believes in general that they came from nothing and in front of them also is nothing, then hopelessness becomes their religion. Why do I say that? Because there's something consistent. Why is this an issue that I would address on a Palm Sunday? Because there is something that is consistent over the past thousands of years. 100% of people will die before the age of 120. This is not some question that nobody in the room is going to ever have to deal with. 100%. I can give you some statistics, but none are more reliable than this one. 100% of people are going to die before they're 120. All of you in the room, if the Lord tarries, you're going to die before you hit 120. What are you going to do about that? According to the book written in 2004 called Heaven, worldwide, I'm talking worldwide, three people die every second. 180 people die every minute. 11,000 people die every hour. And 250,000 people every day die and go to heaven or go to hell. 200, that's a quarter of a million people every day are dying and entering the afterlife. It is an important issue. This is big. I can't tell you how big it is. This should be the primary topic of any church, right? Any church ought to be talking about the afterlife, right? Surely churches talk about heaven. Surely churches talk about hell. Because 100% of all people who go to church and don't go to church are going to find the afterlife at some point. Surely preachers will preach many sermons on heaven. And surely, surely preachers are going to preach many sermons on hell, the afterlife, right? Each year, everybody's going to do that, right? No. No. Many preachers are talking about everything but. Everything but. In fact, most of the preachers, not, I don't want to say most, many of the preachers are talking about everything except heaven and everything except hell and everything except the afterlife. As if somehow or another, the meaning of our life is this present existence. And everything beyond this present existence, existence is in, inconsequential. It is my plan to spend seven weeks specifically on the afterlife to remedy this condition. I want to talk about the goal line. I want to talk about the finish line. Because a group of people traveling through the wilderness on the way to the promised land need to understand what the promised land looks like. Because if you don't know what the goal line looks like and you don't know what the purpose of life is, you're going to fall out. Somewhere on this journey, you're not going to make it. You might turn around and go back to Egypt. Many churches have lost their focus. And if people don't put their focus on heaven, you know what they'll do? If you don't set your sights, if you don't set your sights on heaven, you'll start to set your sights on earth. And if you're not looking for the afterlife, you'll start looking totally at the current life and you'll miss the afterlife. What are your sights on? Reminds me of a funny story. There were three boys out playing in the yard one day. You know how young boys are always proud, my dad's better than your dad. No, my dad's better than your dad. This first boy says, my daddy's fast. He's faster than anybody I ever saw. We were out in the backyard and we had a bow and arrow shooting at a target. And my daddy could shoot the bow and arrow. And before the arrow would get to the target, my daddy's standing at the target as the arrow hits the target. That's how fast he is. The second boy says, that's nothing. My daddy, he's so fast. He's got a gun and he was shooting at a target out back and he pulled the trigger. And before the bullet got to the target, he was standing at the target. He's faster than your daddy. Third kid stood up and says, y'all don't know nothing. My daddy, he's so fast. 
He works for the state. He's home at 3 o'clock and he don't get off till 4.30. I wonder how many people I've made mad already. Now that's fast. I'm going to ask you a question. What are, you, what are your sights set on? Because here's why I'm asking you. The afterlife is coming fast. Everybody in this room, we got one thing in common. The afterlife's coming. It's closer today than it was yesterday. It's unstoppable. You cannot slow it down. You can enter it, but you cannot stop it. So the Bible tells us that while the afterlife is approaching, do not set your sights on the temporary. Here we go. This will be the core scripture for seven weeks. It's found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised to Christ, raised to new life with Christ. Now he's talking to believers, right? Since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Now if you're a visitor with us today and you see these yellow letters, that's your fill in the blanks on the back of the bulletin if you want to keep up. There you go. Since you've been raised to a new life in Christ. What, what does that mean? I, I'm not just looking at the temporary things of the earth anymore. Why? Because I know the afterlife's coming. Set your sights, what? On the realities of heaven. Where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died. To this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God and when Christ who is your life is revealed to the whole world you are going to what when it when it does when the afterlife arrives when I who who am in Christ will meet Christ what, what's going to happen he says you will share in all his glory all of us are running out of time I understand why preachers don't want to talk about it. I get it. All of us are running out of time. I can't deny it. 100% of you and me and society and the world are going to die before they reach 120 years old. We're all running out of time and the reality of heaven and hell should force us to set our sights on the eternal and get our thoughts and our energies off of the temporary. Is life meaningless? That should be my question today. Did you come from nothing? Do you believe not just in heaven, not just in an afterlife, not just in hell, but do you believe that there is something, someone before life, a creator that gives life, breathes life into man, created man in the likeness of God? Or is life meaningless? you got to come to this conclusion. If you came from nothing and you're going to nothing, then between the two nothings is another nothing. But what if you came from someone called before life? who was and is and is to come. And what if you're going back to that same someone at the end of this life, after this life, then between those two is an amazing journey. So here's a question. I want to examine this is life meaningless question. Did you come from nothing? Are you going to nothing? Here's the question. Where are my grandparents today? Let me just use Arthur and Alice Cooper, my dad's mom and dad. They have both died several years ago. Where are they right now? Is there any hope for mankind? With people dying before, 100% of people die before the age of 120. Is there any hope for mankind? It's a good question. Where are my grandparents? Do you have any hope? What does the future hold for you and for your children. Where will you be a hundred years from now? After this life, where will you be? 
maybe you're in the room today, and if you were being honest, you would say you believe that you're going to fade to black unconsciousness. You'll be nowhere doing nothing. Okay? And maybe you're in the room today and you held your hand up, maybe it's peer pressure, but you believe there's a heaven. Let me ask you another question. Does everybody go there? Because there's a less number that says there's a hell. Do very many people go there? Where will you be in a hundred years? So let's do an examination of human culture. Stephen Hawking. Some of you know who he is. Stephen Hawking's considered by most intellectuals to be one of the leading scientists in the world. Many people call him our modern-day Einstein. Stephen Hawking died on March 14th. Now, I have studied his writings over the years on several occasions. I've written some of his writings. But I want to tell you a quote that he said not too long before he died. Here's what he said, and I will quote. He said, there is no heaven. It is a fairy story. We're Stephen Hawking today. I'm not here to try to judge Stephen Hawking's um, eternal condition. That's not my job. That's not what my question's about. Here's a man who says there is no heaven. It's a fairy story. I didn't say it. He said it. So I'll ask you a question. Where is he today? Interesting to me, when I went back and read his writings, two weeks before he died, he predicted the end of the universe. Do you know that? Go look it up. Two weeks before he died, he finished a paper. You know what the name of the paper that he finished and is published? The name of the paper is A Smooth Exit from Eternal Inflation. I actually have no idea what that title means. A Smooth Exit from Eternal Inflation. In that paper, he predicted the end of all the universe. Now, here's Stephen Hawking on this side who says that heaven is a fairy tale. He doesn't believe in God. He, does, he makes it clear. I'm not putting words in his mouth. I'm not trying to dishonor his name or his memory. That's not my goal. I am to, to analyze this man's core beliefs and put them in comparison to someone who believes something different. And by the way, Jesus also predicted the end of the universe, just like Stephen Hawking. Except Jesus says that heaven is not a fairy tale. It is a reality, a physical place where physical people are going to spend a physical eternity. Now, you can follow Stephen Hawking or you can follow Jesus Christ. Because I'm going to tell you, their, their doctrine is totally different. You see, Stephen Hawking came to this conclusion because of this. And I've read his teachings. He believes there is no before, and because there is no before, there cannot be an after. That everything that is, is because of chance random processes. And if everything that is, is because of chance random processes, then there is no life giver before. And if there is no life giver before, there can be no afterlife. So his life was in the pursuit of science, revealing that which in the end on the last day will be utterly meaningless because he will die. Now he had a, a buddy, and the reason I say he's a buddy is because I know that their writings are too similar not to have considered each other. His name's Bill Nye. More than likely, you put your kids in front of a TV set to watch this guy. Bill Nye, the science guy, is an atheist. And Bill Nye, the science guy, had this big debate between Ken Ham, a creationist. In fact, Ken Ham invited Bill Nye, the science guy, to come to the ark in northern Kentucky. And Bill Nye, the science guy, went to the ark, took his news cameras with him, and he met with Ken Ham, and he toured the ark just so I believe to mock it. To make fun of it. While he was there, Bill Nye said four things. Four things. I wrote them down. It's, it, you can check me on it. Four things. I'm not putting words in his mouth. By the way, Bill Nye, the science guy, is not dead. He's still living. Here's what he said. Number one, it's not crazy to believe we're descendants of Martians. 
Now that might not be crazy to you, but it is to me. Now, where did he get that? If you read the writings of Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking said that the theory of evolution is undefendable. He was so smart that he saw through the Darwin's theory of evolution, so he had to come up with another theory of the origin of life, denying God. You know what Stephen Hawking's origin of life is? Go look it up. This was modern-day Einstein, right? Smartest man in the world, some consider. He said that the origin of human life has come, in his mind, to two options. One, life came to earth traveling on ice crystals from other galaxies, number one. Or number two, alien beings. So when Bill Nye goes to the ark and say, it's not crazy to believe we're descendants of Martians, I see where he gets it. Number two, Bill Nye said, when you're dead, you're done. Some of you in the room, maybe if you were intellectually honest today, you believe what he believes. When you're dead, you're done. When they put you in that box and put you in the ground, you're done. You don't know anything. It's over. There's no afterlife. Number three, Bill Nye says right and wrong is determined by the consensus of the tribe. In other words, if we all vote that this is right, if we all get together and vote that abortion is right, then abortion is right. It's determined by the consensus of the tribe. There is no absolute truth. There is no right and wrong governing the universe. There's just us, temporary beings on a temporary earth. Number four, the universe and life arose by natural processes. No supernatural whatsoever. There's the worldview. It's legitimate to the world. It's legitimate. There is no before, and because there is no before, there is no creator God. There is no life-giving God. It's all chance random processes. If there is no before and there is no after, then what is now? And see, I'm, I'm convinced that God created the heavens and the earth. I take a different platform. I believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and that everything that is anything was created by Him, for Him, and through Him. And right now we breathe the breath of life that has its origin in God. And because I believe there is a before, Genesis 1.1, I believe there is an after beyond Revelation. It's called the afterlife. And I'm convinced that God created us, listen, listen, for heaven. You and I weren't created to live eternally on a fallen world. We were created for heaven. There is something deep inside us that cries out for heaven. There is something inside of us that cries out for a permanent home. Heaven is not about a geographical location on a map. Heaven is the presence of God. Wherever God is, that's going to be heaven. So let's focus on heaven. As we begin this seven-part series about the afterlife, what is heaven? Where is heaven? Is there one heaven? Or are there three? The Apostle Paul said he was called up to the third heaven. What's that about? As we examine the afterlife, we've got to examine heaven. So let's start with 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes to the church and says, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. That ought to tell you what the caught up experience was like. I have no idea if it was me in the flesh moving up there or me in the spirit moving up there. I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know this. I was caught up to paradise. And I heard things so astounding they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. Paul calls the third heaven paradise. Is paradise the same as heaven? 
Let's start with the first, second, and third heaven. And then we'll move into this paradise question. When you go outside, if you walked out the doors today and you looked up at the sky, you would see the first heaven. You would see our atmosphere, the sky that surrounds the earth, I believe is the reference to the first heaven. I read that most of the vital items of our atmosphere that sustain our human life are all within 10 miles of planet earth. No other planet in our universe has this atmosphere. God has created our first heaven to sustain our life on earth. The second heaven is the universe beyond our sight. Billions and billions of stars. Galaxies so numerous they cannot be counted and they cannot be measured by man. It goes and it goes and it goes so far that our instruments cannot measure the distance and count the stars. It's that big. The psalmist refers to the second heaven as this. The second heaven reveals the glory of God. Have you ever walked out at night and looked up at the stars and just said, whoa? It doesn't say a word, does it? And yet you're astounded when you look at the order, when you look at the beauty and the brilliance of the stars. The psalmist refers to the second heaven as a revealer of God. Let me read it to you, Psalms 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make Him known. They speak without a sound. The heavens don't need to have an audible sound. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. So where is the third heaven? If, I, if the first heaven is our atmosphere and the second heaven is the expanse of the stars as far as we can see, where's the third heaven that the Apostle Paul was called up to? It is the place of God's dwelling. It is a reference to paradise. Let me read it again, verse 2 through 4. I was called up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know. But I do know. But I do know I was called up to paradise. And I heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. All the modern English translations that I checked, all of them use the word paradise in this translation. To describe the third heaven. It is the place of God. Paul was taken to the place of God. Jesus told us in the Lord's Prayer that this is where the Father's residence is. It is where He resides. In paradise. In the third heaven. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, pray like this. Our Father, where? Where? Our Father in heaven. May your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on the earth down here as it is in heaven where you live. Psalms 103.19 says, The Lord has made the heavens His throne. From there, the heavens, He rules over everything. Paul's reference to paradise in the third heaven, this is the place of God's throne. This is the place that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. This is paradise. This is our afterlife. This is our eternal home. This is your destination if you are in Christ, the third heaven. Now I know some people are going to hear that and they're going to say, well preacher, you've talked about one day heaven going to be down here and God's going to make heaven on earth. I'm going to tell you, heaven is not a longitude and a latitude. It is not a geographical location. Heaven right now is in the, in the heavens. 
One day, heaven is going to move to this present earth because heaven is not about geography. Heaven is the presence of God. Wherever God moves, that'll be heaven. And don't you try to go somewhere that's not where he's at because it won't be called heaven. We can't see from here the third heaven. I can't look up and see paradise. I can't see the third heaven, but I'm going to tell you, he can see us. We can't see him, but he can see us. Psalms 33, verse 13. The Lord looks down from where? He looks down from heaven, and he sees the whole human race. From his throne, he observes all who live on the earth. Can you imagine this with your mind? Can you imagine what heaven's like? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul being taken up, caught up to the third heaven? And he says, there's things that I saw, that I heard. I can't communicate. He said, I can't talk about them. They're so glorious. They're so much bigger than what we can imagine. Some people tell me that it is not possible for us to comprehend heaven. I heard a guy one time say, you know, preachers don't preach about heaven because, and they, it's the same reason they don't preach about revelation. Because there really is nobody who can understand it. And because nobody can understand it, you don't need to cover it. Really? In fact, somebody told me one time that they based that ideology on this verse. Let me read it. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. That is what the Scripture means when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. So this, this friend of mine one time described that no mind, no ear, no nothing, no eyes, nothing can imagine heaven. So why do you want to talk about something that you can't even imagine? If you're in the room today and you have a similar thought, let me say, it has a flaw. You didn't read the next verse. So while I agree that there is no mind, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can imagine the, the depth and the power of God's heaven. Next verse says something. Let me read it to you. Verse 10. But it was to us. Next verse. But it was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit. No eye, no ear, no mind. But it is to us that God has revealed these things by His Spirit. For His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit. So we can know. So we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. We can know. You don't have to guess about the afterlife. You can know. The whole idea of Palm Sunday and Easter is so that He would open up a revelation to the afterlife so you would know the word the bible and the holy spirit reveal much about heaven our future is in heaven our lord is in heaven everything of eternal importance to us is in heaven how can i not think about it jesus is in heaven sitting at the right hand of the father my grandparents are in heaven my inheritance is in heaven my future house is in heaven my citizenship is in heaven my new job assignment is in heaven my treasure is in heaven i've been sending it ahead of me for years now can i give you a bit of a financial advice you ought to go on and set up direct deposit now send it in front of you here's what jesus says about that Matthew 6, 19. Don't store up treasures here on the earth. Don't do it. You know what it is? It's when you take your eyes, you take your sight off of heaven, and you get all bogged down, and all you see is the present earth. Do not store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures where? In heaven. 
where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be. You think he doesn't know who we are? Wherever your treasure is, guess what? There's your heart. If your treasure's in heaven, your heart's in heaven. If your treasure's on earth, your heart's on the earth. And you think he doesn't know? He says it. Wherever your treasure is, just look underneath of it and you'll find your heart. You'll find the pursuit of your life. My heart's in heaven. I'm not trying to stand up here and sound spiritual. I'm telling you the truth. My heart is already in heaven. Here's the real truth. The only things that are going to go from earth to heaven are human souls and the Word of God. The only thing that's going to make this transition, it's not going to be any of the junk we've pursued in our lifetime, is human souls and the Word of God. My name is in heaven. Is yours? Where are you going after this life? I'm asking each one of you a question right now. Where are you going after this life? Have you made any plans? Have you made a reservation? My name is in heaven. There's a plan. I'm working on that plan. I have received that plan. L listen, I, I know that people, many of you in the audience, you've got 401ks, you've got retirement, you've got Social Security. You've looked at that stuff in your future, right? You look at that stuff. You see the stock market go up, you say, yeehaw. You see it go down, you say, oh me. You're looking at the future. How am I going to retire? What am I going to do when I get old? I'm going to ask you a different question. What are you going to do after that? What are you going to do after that? I see them marching in the streets over the retirement plan that's all up in the air in the state of Kentucky. And you know what? That's fine. That's good. What are you going to do after that? Everybody's all tore up about this stuff that's temporary. What are you going to do after that? Who's marching in the streets telling the news what's going to come after that? Because something's going to come after that. Have you stored up any treasure for that? Did you put anything aside for that? Don't store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. You're depositing your money in the wrong accounts. What are you going to do after that? It's my experience that the average church person rarely considers the afterlife. It's coming. And it's coming at breakneck speed. And you can't slow it down. And you can't stop it. The Gospel of Luke records Jesus sending out 72 people on a mission trip. And when they returned, this happened. Let me read it to you. Read it to you. Luke 10, 17. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to Jesus, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Now pause for a moment. These, these 72 guys have encountered Jesus and they go out and demons are running from them. Verse 18. Yes, Jesus told them. And then he says something. Almost sounds out of context. He said, yes, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And you can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't you rejoice. What? What? But don't you rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Don't you go down that road. You don't have any power if I didn't give it to you. Don't you go down that road. There's pride down that road. But he does tell us what you should rejoice in. Church, rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Somebody say hallelujah. Satan has fallen from heaven. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He has fallen from the presence of God. I rejoice today that my name is registered there. I have a reservation there. I have every intention of 
living there in the presence of God. I mentioned earlier that many unbelievers believe that there's a heaven. It's almost like an oxymoron, right? When an unbeliever believes, can you discard? Unbelievers, there are, there's a large number of unbelievers who will say they believe in heaven. So I'm going to ask you a question. Can you discard all religion and just decide that everyone goes to heaven? Because there's unbelievers who now believe in heaven. They reject the before life. They reject the current Jesus life. But they acknowledge an afterlife called heaven. I was listening to a sermon on XM Radio recently by Billy Graham. And he was heavy into this topic of universalism back in the 80s. You know what universalism is? It's the belief that everyone goes to heaven. And let me say, universalism is practiced universally in, nursing, in funeral homes. Excuse me, funeral homes. Every funeral home I've ever gone to in my entire lifetime practices universalism. You know why? What's everybody say when you go into a funeral home? Come on, they're in a better place. I'm not being critical, I'm being very sincere. They're in a better place. Never once have I gone into a funeral home and somebody looks at me and says, I bet they're in hell today. <laughs> Never happened. Does everybody go to heaven? Well, it sounds like everybody goes to heaven. It sure sounds like everybody goes to heaven. Universalism is a religion. It's a false religion, but it's a religion. It's the idea that you can reject Christ, you can reject God, you can reject everything. We'll make up our own religion, and our own religion is universalism, and everybody goes to heaven. And you know why? You know why? You know why? Because unless there's an afterlife, current life means nothing. It means nothing. There's no meaning to life. So you've got to at least form something after life so that the current life is livable. Is there an afterlife? And here's my question. And if there is, what is the criteria? Who decides? Who decides who goes to heaven? Is there a standard? Who, what, where, when? Let's approach this section with a couple of specific questions. Where are my believing grandparents right now? Where's Peter, Andrew, James, John, the Apostle Paul? Where are they right now, today, this minute? Maybe you watched them put your grandmother in a box. I did. And I watched them put my grandmother in a box, and I watched them put that box in the ground. Where is grandma right now? Do you think we are the first generation to ever ask that question? You'd be wrong. They've been asking that question for a long time. Where'd they go? What about the believers in the first century church? This question came up in the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica and the Apostle Paul deals with it straight on. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, that's a reference to Christian believers, brothers, sisters. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. That'd be my grandma in this case. We want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. So you will not grieve like the people who have no hope. We're grieving when they put grandma in the box and put the box in the ground. I'm grieving, but I'm not grieving like the world grieves. Why? Because I believe in the afterlife. Where's grandma right now? Next verse, verse 14. For since we believe, here it comes, here it comes. Since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, not if, but when Jesus returns, God will bring back with Jesus. Here, are you ready for this? When He returns, God will bring back with Jesus the believers who have previously died. Believers who have died. The NIV says those who have fallen asleep in Him. Either way, they're believers in Christ who somebody put in the box and put the box in the ground. Where's Grandma right now? They are asleep in Christ. 
they are dead in Christ. But where are they? I don't want to grieve without hope. So what is my hope for grandma? What is my hope for me? What is my hope for my children and my grandchildren? What is my hope? What is your hope? We believe Jesus is going to bring believing grandma back with him when he returns. But where is grandma right now? If I go to grandma's grave with the shovel, and no, I'm not going to do that. If I go to grandma's grave with the shovel, will I find grandma? Very important point here. We are talking about believers who have died. Believers who have fallen asleep. We are not talking about unbelievers because it's a totally different outcome. What I'm about to reveal to you is not applicable to unbelievers. I'll cover that later. Jesus told his disciples that Lazarus was sleeping knowing that Lazarus was dead. Go back and look at the wording. Jesus also told a crowd in Matthew chapter 9 that a little girl was sleeping knowing that she's dead. So why is Jesus using the word sleeping to refer to dead people when he knows they're dead people? Let me read the Matthew 9 one. When Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. Get out, Jesus told them. The girl isn't dead. She's only asleep. But he knows she's dead. But the crowd laughed at him. After the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand and she stood up. Now what is this sleeping thing that Jesus refers to for Lazarus and the little girl? What, what does this sleeping thing mean? Lazarus got up and this little girl got up. They must have just been sleeping, right? You can't really just get up if you're dead, right? Do you see many dead people get up? Must be sleeping. Can you get up from death? I'm going to tell you the whole idea of Palm Sunday. The whole idea of Good Friday, the whole idea of Easter is this question. Can you get up from death? Yes. It changes everything. This would indeed be the largest question of all human existence. Can you get up from dead? They were both sleeping in death, but Jesus woke them both up. What about that? The New Testament often, often uses sleep to refer to death. The Greek word used in this case is komeo, which literally means sleep. It's the same word used for someone who would check into an overnight inn to stay before walking out the next day to continue their journey. Anybody see it yet? It's the same word used for dormitory. This helps us describe what happens to a believer's body when they die. They go to sleep, and they rest in a hotel, an inn, a dormitory, awaiting the day of the resurrection when they will arise to continue their journey. Did you know the English word cemetery comes from the Greek word which describes a sleeping place or a dormitory? The grave, the cemetery. Is just a dormitory, an inn, where the believer's body will rest until they are awakened by Jesus at the resurrection. But Terry, you didn't answer my question. Where is grandma now? Where is my believing grandma now? Their bodies, their human flesh, are asleep in the ground while they wait for the resurrection. But what about their soul? Is the soul in the box and the box is in the ground? Now we're getting to the main event. The afterlife. What about the souls of believers that have died? Peter, Andrew, James, John, Grandma. Where are their souls right now? Let me begin by saying that they are their souls. They are not their bodies. C.S. Lewis put it the best I've ever heard. C.S. Lewis would look at you and say, you do not have a soul. 
You have a body. You are a soul. The body is just the house that the soul lives in. When the body dies and goes into the sleep of death's grave, into the dormitory, what happens to the soul? I'm going to say it again. When the body dies and goes into the sleep of death's grave, into the dormitory, what happens to the soul? That is the question for next Sunday. (laughs) That is my Easter teaser. I will use the Word of God, specifically the teachings of Jesus, to answer those questions and more next week. I invite you to come. Everybody wants to know about the afterlife. And you tell me what better Sunday in the calendar year than Easter to talk about the afterlife. So I close with questions. Here we go. Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Do you believe in the afterlife? Even better, do you believe everyone goes to heaven? Do you believe in universalism? Everybody's in a better place. Do you believe that you're going to heaven? If you die tonight, if you die tonight, do you know that you know that you know you're going to heaven? What if I told you today you can know that you know that you know? Did you receive God's criteria on this topic or are you listening to what the world says? Because it's my experience that many church people are allowing the world to tell you what the Bible says. Because you don't know it yourself. Are you listening to what Jesus says about heaven or are you listening to the world? Why would you let someone who has never been to heaven tell you about heaven? And even worse, why would you ever listen to somebody who's been kicked out of heaven? tell you about how to get back into heaven jesus says i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven there are 32 specific references to the kingdom of heaven in matthew alone you don't have to guess if you want to know the criteria by the way everybody's not going to heaven only if you are going to heaven that's not my words it's the one from heaven who says that i want to read to you just a few of Jesus' descriptions, of the Word's descriptions, of the criteria, of the criteria, of the criteria of heaven in the afterlife. And then I'll close. First one's Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and he began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist said what? Repent of your sins. I'm going to ask everybody a question. You all raised your hand, you're going to heaven. I'm asking you, did you repent of your sins? Repent of your sins means you turn around. What it really means is you're on a road, but you're going the wrong way. Repent says turn around. Heaven's the other way. Oh, everybody goes to heaven. No, 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 no. Everybody doesn't go to heaven. Repent of your sins. Turn around. Matthew 4, 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach. What's his message? Same message. Repent of your sins and turn to God. For the kingdom of heaven is near. It's within your reach, but you need to turn around. Everybody thinks they're going to heaven, but nobody wants to repent. What if these words are revealing the gateway to the afterlife. Would you listen? Matthew 5, 3. Jesus said, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Do you recognize today your need for Him? How many of you in the room today, 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 do you recognize how desperately you need Him? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.10 God blesses. Jesus said God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You know what? There is a right and there is a wrong and there is a truth and there is a lie. Do not let the world tell you what the Bible says. Matthew 7.21 
Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father will enter. You know who's saying, Lord, Lord? It's not pagans. It's church people. Because I'm going to, pagans are never going to say, Lord, Lord. They're not going to do it. It's not in their vocabulary. You know who says, Lord, Lord? Church people. And just because you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, not Terry Cooper, Jesus said, only those who do the will of my Father will enter heaven. Don't let someone who's not from heaven tell you about heaven. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field in his excitement. How many of you all are excited? Say hallelujah. That didn't sound excited to me at all. If you go along, it goes faster. I'll just tell you. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in the field. In his excitement. There you go. He hid it again and he went and what did he do? He sold everything he had. Everything. He was willing to trade everything to get into heaven. Everything. Is that you? Matthew 18, verse 2, Jesus called a little child to him and put a child among them. And then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins, there it is again, repentance, and you become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know what? This description is this childlike faith that God said it, I read it, I believe it, we're through, let's go. That's it. God said it, I read it, I believed it, let's go. It's a childlike faith. Matthew 19, 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And you know what? The average person in the average church is spending their life trying to get riches. Knowing that he said, the more riches you get, the harder it's going to be for you to give up that treasure to receive the real treasure. There is a heaven and there is a hell. There is an afterlife. Some will enter heaven and some will enter hell. This is the reason for Palm Sunday. This is the reason for Good Friday. This is the reason for Easter. What, what, what? It is the revelation of the afterlife. I, I can forever in my mind, after going to Israel and standing on the Mount of Olives and looking at Jerusalem City, I will forever see this scene. In, in, on Palm Sunday, Jesus walks to the Mount of Olives. He looks over the city and he cries. He cries. He weeps. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. If you only knew, if you only knew who I was, if you only knew that I came to gather you as like as a hen would gather her chicks under my wing, but you will be left desolate because you have rejected me. He cries over the city. Palm Sunday is the revelation of the afterlife. Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, shows that there's a way for you to pass through death itself into eternal life. But you must believe Him. The standards of heaven have been set. I read them to you, many of them to you just a moment ago. I close with this future scene, this unstoppable truth. Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs. Did you know there's a gate? And did you know there's an inside? And did you know there's an outside? Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I Jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come and let him who hears say come and whoever is thirsty let him come and whoever wishes let him take the free gift of the water of life. The free gift of the water of the afterlife.
Did you know there was a gate? Did you know everyone doesn't go into that gate? Did you know there's some outside who will never enter? Nobody has to guess, and you don't have to wait and see. You can know in advance. The Bible is clear. Jesus is the root and the offspring of David. He is the bright morning star. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one's going to enter this city outside of Jesus. No one. Jesus is the afterlife. Jesus is the before life. And Jesus is the right now life. And there is no life without Him. Finally, Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who was. He is before Genesis 1.1. I am the God who was and is and He is still to come. Still to come. He is the afterlife. Are you ready for the afterlife? I'm asking you, are you ready for the afterlife? You can't wait till afterlife to get ready for the afterlife. You'll have to get ready for the afterlife while you still have life. I'm going to ask Chad to come out for the invitation. Billy Graham died on February 21st. The world mourned his passing. I'll ask you a question. Where's Billy Graham today? Stephen Hawking died on March 14th. Where's Stephen Hawking today? What about a hundred years from now? Where are you going to be? You want to deal with that later? You know, I got some things I need to take care of, preacher, and when I get all that stuff to take care of, then I'll deal with the afterlife. Really? How much time do you have left? I read this. I got in the mail from Billy Graham. says, finally home. One of the Bible's greatest truths is that we're not meant for this world alone. We were meant for heaven. And heaven is our ultimate home. We're going to sing a song together. It's a worship song. It's also a decision song. If you're in the room today and the Holy Spirit has invited you to join the afterlife in Christ. You can know that you know that you know. But you've got to be willing to repent of your sins. You've got to be willing to deny yourself. Take up a cross to follow Him. Follow Him where? Into the afterlife. It's a worship song. It's a, it's a song of invitation. This is our time to stand.